Amen. Well, good morning. Grab your Bibles, if you would. James chapter 3. James chapter 3, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this incredible letter. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you'll remember two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that James challenges his readers, the listeners, with the simple fact that if you claim that you have this faith, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, works will come of that. And if there are no works that follow this profession of faith, you have to question your faith. As a matter of fact, he said, faith without works is dead. And we followed that up last week as he, as he continued from, from works defining our faith, works showing our faith, to words proclaiming our faith. That the words that we speak should come from hearts that have been surrendered to Jesus. And as Jesus said, out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouths speak. So not only our works should show that we belong to him, but our words as well. Well, this week, as we continue along with this, we're going to see that James doesn't stop there. It doesn't just go from our hands to our hearts, but it also goes to our heads. We're going to look at what James talks about wisdom, godly wisdom, this morning. And as we think about this, it's important that we understand what is meant by wisdom, because there is a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom, being smart and being wise. How many of you have a smartphone? I mean, it it seems like most people do anymore, and it's kind of that funny question that you have to ask, how did you get along in life before this? I mean, everything is done on these smartphones, but did you ever stop to wonder why they don't call them wise phones? Seriously, think about that. Because I, I can't answer why they didn't, but the truth of the matter is, is because they're not wise They're smartphones, but they don't have wisdom. They have apps, but no aptitude. The phone itself doesn't dictate, it doesn't have any ability to use the apps itself. And that's basically the bottom line difference. Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge appropriately. That's, that's how we look at wisdom and understanding. You know, you've, you've probably come into people, come across people, run into people before that are really, really book smart, but when it comes to real life stuff, not so much. And if you are one of those kind of people, I pray you've married well, because that, that makes up for a lot of our shortcomings. And that's what James is focusing on here, not knowledge. Not information, but the ability to use that information. Wisdom. The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon. If we look at his life, going back to the beginning, we see something very interesting. His father, David, King David. David, a man after God's own heart. A man who had a relationship with God that few others have had. The intimacy and the understanding of this relationship. And Solomon, his son, David poured into his son, telling him, giving him knowledge, passing on the things that he had learned from his relationship to God. And Solomon speaks of this in Proverbs chapter 4. 
Beginning in verse 3, he says, When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. What Solomon is saying is from the time I was very little, from the back to as early on as I can remember, my dad was giving me knowledge. He was telling me things that I should and shouldn't do, giving, passing on this knowledge to me. But Solomon doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, what he says next indicates the fact that the most important piece of information that David ever passed along to him is in verse 5 of chapter 4 of Proverbs. Acquire wisdom. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is... Or the primary thing is wisdom, and that's verse 7, acquire wisdom. Twice Solomon says, my dad poured into me all of this knowledge, gave me all of this information, but he told me, above all else, acquire wisdom. Now that word acquire means that we have to go somewhere to get it. So where do we go to get this wisdom? Well, he tells us in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord gives wisdom. Later on, as Solomon grew and David, his father, passes on, he dies. Now Solomon becomes king of Israel and God appears to Solomon and asks him for anything. He says, you ask me of anything, I will give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. I have all of this knowledge, I have all of this stuff, but God, I need wisdom how to use this knowledge in order to govern your people, in order to handle this monumental task that's been laid before me. I need your wisdom. And God gave it to him. As a matter of fact, we're told that Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived. You see, knowledge alone is not enough. Biblical knowledge alone is not enough. You could memorize every word of this. And it wouldn't be enough. Head knowledge is not enough. Many people back in the time of Jesus, many, many rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees had the entire Old Testament memorized. They didn't have to look it up. They, they knew it. But Jesus said this in John chapter 5, speaking to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus is saying you have all of the knowledge, but you lack wisdom. You have all of, all of the, the stuff that's been poured into your head all of these years and all of your studying, but because you haven't gone to the Father and asked for wisdom, you don't have it and you're missing it. I'm standing right in front of you. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, just as Solomon tells us, tells us the source of this wisdom. Speaking to the disciples, Matthew 16 verse 13, he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't get this by hanging around a bunch of other people. 
You got this because you sought the Father and He revealed it to you. This wisdom. Well, with that as our backdrop, our introduction to our text today, as I said, James chapter 3, we'll begin at verse 13. And he asks an interesting question. Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, I got to think again that he's asking this a little tongue-in-cheek. He wasn't really asking for a show of hands. This is one of those, one of those if we look at it, and, I, and I, I, ask, I ask his forgiveness already if I'm stepping out of line here, but a dumb question. Kind of like that question, you know, who wants to be a millionaire? Who doesn't want to be a millionaire? I mean, it's, it's one of those questions. And I think here again, he's kind of getting at this, you know, who among you is wise in understanding? Because everybody is going to say, nobody's going to say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm dumb. Everybody's going to say, I'm wise in understanding. Even though we don't say it maybe verbally, we say it in our actions. That's why we argue all the time. I'm right. I'm wiser than you are. I understand more than you do. That's why, we, that's why we argue. So when he asks this question, he follows it up right away with a let him show, let him demonstrate, let him show the source of his wisdom. Let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. He's saying, reveal it. Reveal the source of your wisdom by what you do. Your good behavior, your conduct. If you have a King James Version, it says conversation there. Your words should show it. Your good deeds, your works. And again here, the gentleness of wisdom. Now, those, those first things, you know, we could probably line up again when you talk in worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. Wisdom is displayed in our words. Wisdom is displayed in our works. But here we get to something very where it starts to, the rubber meets the road here, the difference between the two. Gentleness of wisdom. That word gentle, meek, mild. That doesn't describe wise people in our society. Wise people in our society are going to be the ones in the top, the ones who are the, the most vocal, the ones who will do anything to get there. We need to understand what he's saying here too, though. Meekness is not weakness. The word here is used to describe a wild horse that has been brought under control. It doesn't lose any of its strength, any of its power, but through humility has now surrendered to someone else taking control and dictating where that horse goes. And that's what the word is used here. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 tells us that it is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The source, again, being God. We receive this from Him. Well, Again, now as we start to compare and look at godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom, again, we look at the source, we look at the standard that's used to measure it, going back to our who wants to be a millionaire example, worldly wisdom. If we take that and stick it into our illustration here, it would be finally you get on the game show and you stand up and you say, all right, if you haven't seen the show before, you have to answer a series of questions that get progressively harder, and if you answer them all, you win a million dollars. Worldly wisdom, the way the world looks at wisdom, would be, okay, Regis, I'm here. And I know I need to answer a bunch of questions, but here's the deal. I get to ask my own questions, and I get to answer them however I want, and whatever I say is right. 
Now, we would see that, and if that actually happened on the show, they'd escort him off and bring in a new contestant. We would think, well, that's absolutely stupid. That's crazy. No one, we, we wouldn't allow that. But somehow, in our logic and in the way we, the world looks at things, worldly wisdom, that's exactly how it's done. My truth is my truth. It's going to be different than your truth, probably, but that's okay, as long as my truth works for me. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that this is not a new thing to our generation. He said, professing to be wise, they became fools. I, 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 I proclaim my own wisdom, different from God's wisdom. And Paul says, God calls them fools for that. Jeremiah uses a little stronger language. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12, it says, It is he, meaning God, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings out of the wind from his storehouses. Verse 14 of chapter 10, Jeremiah, he says, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. God's word, not mine. When we compare our wisdom to God's wisdom, totally devoid of knowledge, Yet again, we somehow feel that we can stand up and use our worldly wisdom. Proverbs chapter 7, 8, and 9. If you want a little homework to do this week, Solomon compares worldly wisdom to godly wisdom. But James does that, and that's our study for today. He takes the two and he puts them side by side. And we're, we look at the, the source of the wisdom, we look at the fruits of the wisdom, and we look at the results. And we take a look first, verse 14. Worldly wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where, selfish, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. As we've gone through our study of James, one thing that is blatantly obvious is James doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't try to, try to make everything really soft and fluffy and feel good. He calls it what it is. And here we see that this worldly wisdom is not just some toy to be played with. It's not some harmless thing. He says it is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic from hell itself directly opposed to godly wisdom. Now, Paul cites these same three sources referring to the way that we used to walk, the wisdom that we used to use to guide our steps. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, earthly, according to the prince of the power of the air, demonic, of the spirits that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, natural, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Notice he pulls in the, the, uh, the concept of the mind as well. This is a battle for our minds. This battle between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And if you'll remember last week, as he cites here at the end of Ephesians, this nature, 
that, is, that we used to have. We used to walk this way because this was our nature. But as we talked last week, we have been given a new nature as followers of Jesus. Now, he didn't take the old one and change it, and he didn't remove the old one when he placed in the new. Hence, we have this continual battle of our old flesh nature and our new spirit nature, and we talked about that at length last week. But here, when we're talking about wisdom and understanding heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom from earthly wisdom, we need to understand that when we were given this new nature, we also got a new address. Our home isn't here. Our home is in heaven. But just like the new nature, we're not immediately transported to the new address. Our mail's being forwarded there, but we're not there yet. And we need to sojourn in this world that we are in right now. We need to go through this world that we are still in. And we need to understand that we are in enemy territory. The world wisdom, the world system is, at, is against us, violently opposed to us. And it's a battle, just like a battle of our natures. So we understand the source the fruit that comes from this wisdom from the world and from hell itself, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance, and deception. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. We've talked about these things before and the test that we have to put ourselves through. And when it comes to wisdom, our minds, the things that process through our heads, even if it doesn't come out of our mouths, when we see someone else blessed, when we see someone else doing well, when we see someone else promoted or, or being honored in some way, do we rejoice with them? Or are we critical? Are we, are we envious? When, when we see someone else fail, when we see someone else struggle, when we see someone else going through difficulty, do we bear that burden with them? Or do we sit off to the side and say, I saw that coming? arrogance, lying against the truth. Again, what is truth? You have your truth. It's different than mine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk with my truth and you can go with yours and that's fine. There is no real truth anyway. There is no standard, true standard of truth. That's lying against the truth because the word of God is very clear. There is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To reject that is to lie against the truth. And it goes far deeper than that as well into far, far different areas. Whenever God is convicting us in our hearts, if we say, not for me, thanks, that's lying against the truth. And that wisdom is from hell itself. And the results, disorder, and every evil thing. Now, as you're probably aware, used this as an illustration before to describe this, when, when tellers are trained to identify counterfeit money, they don't look at counterfeit money to do it. They look at the real thing. They're going to try to identify counterfeit $20 bills. They study real $20 bills so well that they can spot a counterfeit a mile away. So instead of spending our time looking at what does is, what is worldly wisdom look like, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at what godly wisdom looks like so that we can identify that in our lives and anything that's different from that, we can immediately identify as that's coming from the world and we push that aside. So, verse 17 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. He gives us eight things to check, eight things to go through that define wisdom. First, before we get into those eight things, we see the source right away from the beginning, from above. This is wisdom from God. Verse 17 of chapter 1 tells us that every good thing given, every perfect gift comes from him. His perfect godly wisdom comes directly from him. And we see the first thing, and notice it, and it's very important that we understand this, it says it is first pure. First pure. James makes it very clear that we have to have this first before anything else. It must start here, and it makes sense if you think about it. You can't have godly wisdom without God, right? And we understand from God's word that sin has separated us from God. Pure means to be clean. And, and though we might have differing, if, if parents, children here have differing ideas of what clean is, I know, I know when, when my, my, kid, my wife tells my kids to go clean their room, and they say, all right, my room's clean. She doesn't even have to go. No, it's not. Totally different idea of what a clean room looks like. And again, worldly wisdom would tell you, would tell us that, yeah, you know what, we, we make mistakes along the way, but as long as you do more good than bad, you're okay. Everybody goes to heaven. You know, just make sure you're doing some good stuff so you have a good seat when you get there or whatever. You know, just, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And that's worldly wisdom. Bottom line is, it's just not truth. God's word, when he speaks of pure, he means 100% pure, zero impurities, perfection. Now that's a huge problem because how do, we, how do we move past that? It says that we have to first be pure, but any one of us will admit we're not pure. We're not, we're not 100% pure. Yeah, maybe I did more good than bad yesterday, but that doesn't do it. I go back to an old hymn that I just, I just love. I, I pull out the, the, the words often and read it because it just it blesses me every time. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. O precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, as, as we start reading that, and again, I, I, aren't you, don't you just burst forth in praise that it doesn't say, what can wash away my sin? Nothing. But without godly wisdom, without the word of God and without rejecting it, that is the answer for you. Nothing. Nothing, because there's only one thing, and it's the blood of Jesus. That is the only thing that can wash away your sin. As believers, as followers of Jesus, the first thing Jesus did when we opened up the door of our hearts to him was to clean it. To cleanse it with his blood. So I ask you this morning, have you ever opened your heart completely and totally to Jesus? 
Have you ever given him all access to your heart? Because if you haven't, the answer for you is nothing. There is nothing that can cleanse you from your sin. Only he can, but it requires that you confess your sin that you admit that you are a sinner, that you've fallen short of the glory of God. You repent of that sin, which means you turn from that sin, you turn to Jesus, and you receive the free gift of salvation, the free cleansing that he offers. If you have not done that, you will die in your sins and spend eternity separated from him in hell. But, but, his blood is available to you right here, right now. You simply respond to the Holy Spirit prompting your heart and receive that free gift. Well, there is a problem, though, that we all face, even those of us that have surrendered our life to Jesus, right? Because it says that this wisdom is first pure. Okay, so we take care of this original purification, the original cleansing. But just like my children's room, no matter how good it is, the next day, like a tornado went off. It doesn't stay clean. So then what? Well, praise God, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Literally, it means to keep cleansing us from our sin. The blood of Jesus isn't a one-time application. It continually cleanses us. And this is so crucial to understand. Again, he makes it a point to say it is first pure. We need to understand this because after our heart is purified, then our minds can be renewed. It can't go before the other. Our hearts need to be purified, then our minds can be renewed. We need to get this relationship taken care of before we can worry about any other relationship. Once this purity takes place, once this relationship is taken care of, then our relationship with others, our, re our reaction to the outside, our response to the obstacles that we face, it takes on a whole different avenue. It takes on a whole different meaning. He goes here, he goes, first pure, then goes into the rest. Well, as we move on, I had a couple of times this week had devotions with our staff and a, and a few other people. And I asked this question, and it's interesting, the response. So I'm going to ask you, if you were going to describe the last week with one word, what would it be? Now don't yell out your answers, just think about it for a second. If you're going to describe last week in one word, what would it be? And it's interesting, the response, because most of the responses that we got, that we were, as we were discussing, fell into pretty much the same kind of category. Crazy, hectic, chaotic, busy. A few very spiritual people said blessed. <laughs> One word. Now that you have that word in your mind, I would doubt very many of you said peace. I mean, that, when we think about it, that word probably doesn't describe it. When we think back over the week, it does, that's, that's not the word. Tranquility, calmness. But bottom line, it should. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace 
whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Perfect peace. That's a promise. If we have this first part, you will keep him in perfect peace. But there's a caveat to it. We have to make the decision. This is a mind thing. This is a thought thing. It says, whose mind is stayed on you. And here we see the first aspect of godly wisdom, what's first pure, now peaceable, then peaceable. And it's the first one on the list. And what it's saying is that the the wisdom that we get from above allows us to look at all of the situations around us and still have peace. We see examples over and over in God's word of godly men and godly women who are doing great But things happened, things happened in their lives, and they took their eyes off of God, they took their mind off of God, they said, i got to figure this out in my own wisdom, or look to others and see how the world is handling this, and go in that direction only to have anything but peace. Bottom line is, it's the opposite of arrogance. Arrogance says, I look at the situation, I look at the, at the problems, I look at the storms around me, and I think, i got to figure this out in my own wisdom. i got to use worldly wisdom to solve this problem. And, and here we're seeing that godly wisdom says, no, you keep your eyes on me, Peter, walking on the water in the storm. You look at me. The disciples in the boat, storm all around. Jesus, you, look at me. Don't look at the storm. The storm's going to be there, but so am I. He will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Jesus said in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus clearly says, My peace is totally different than the world's peace. Having this relationship purified, as we talked about first, that's that's peace with God. We have peace with God again because of what Jesus did for us. Here we see the peace of God. If we have the peace with God and the peace of God ruling our hearts and our minds, we will have inner peace. No matter what's going on around us, no matter how crazy it gets, we can have that peace. That's God's design for us. That's his heart for us. And not only a peace within us, but a peace around us. Not only a peace with God, not only a peace with ourselves, but a peace with others. Paul said in in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now that's a tall order, but it's an order nonetheless. And James gives us now in our next two traits that we see of godly wisdom, two avenues, two approaches for us to handle that, to take care of this, to be at peace with one another. First of all, he says, gentle. Now this is a difficult word to translate with a single word, and it's very different from the word used in 3, 13, chapter 3, verse 13 that we talked about earlier. That, that word that is used to talk about the, the wild horse that's calmed, different word altogether. This word really has to do with yielding. And Speaking of yielding, yielding the right of way even though you have it is the point of this word. You have every right, every legal right, 
every right whatsoever to do a certain thing, yet for the sake of a better, bigger good, for the sake of others, for the sake of something bigger than yourself, you choose to do something else. Surrendering your own rights for a, for a bigger cause. We see, see this beautifully illustrated in the life of Abraham. Abraham and his nephew Lot, they, they end up accumulating so much. They've been so blessed. They have so many things that God has given to them. They don't have enough room to, to, to live together anymore. Abraham had every right as being the senior, the elder statesman, the, the uncle. He had every right to tell Lot where to go, which direction to head, how far to go. He had every right, but he didn't. He, using gentleness... Godly wisdom said, Lot, you choose. You choose where you want to go, and I'll go the other direction. Totally humbling himself. Giving up his right to stand in a certain position. And that's what this word speaks of. It's loaded with forgiveness. And a forgiveness that oftentimes, again, may not even be, be warranted, may not even be needed from, from a perspective of that you've done anything wrong. But you go and say, forgive me anyway. If I've harmed you in any way, forgive me. Even though the other person is wrong, so you think. And let me give you an idea of what this prayer doesn't look like. It's not God... I know that there's a problem between me and this person, and I know I've probably played a role in this, so forgive me for that. But Lord, my prayer is that you make them so uncomfortable and restless until they come and ask me for forgiveness so that we can get past this. That's not what the prayer looks like. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you perfect, I'm going to, I am going to give you permission to not even pray about it. You just go right now and ask him for forgiveness after the service. One commentator said, this gentle, this word is active grace, willingness to yield even when you have the right of way. Charles Spurgeon said this, cultivate forbearance until your heart yields a fine crop of it. Pray for a short memory as to all unkindness. Wise words from a wise man. Another wise man, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, wrote this, Romans chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Now clearly, Paul is speaking of the fact that we should place others' needs and others' desires above our own, as he did to the church in Philippi. But what I believe he's also saying here is that when we bear the weakness of those others, not to please ourselves, it means that we don't have a hidden agenda that's coming behind it. I'm not going to ask this person's forgiveness so that I can somehow get something on the other end of this. This is a totally selfless act that you are doing for a greater good. Well, the next trait that he lists is reasonable. And it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It means compliant. Whereas the previous word that we looked at dealt with the fact that you're, you're right, but you're choosing to submit those rights for a greater good. This word means you're wrong. <laughs> and you're going you're gonna to come under agreement with this other person because, because you realize that it's a, it, they're, they're right. Their way is better. 
that God is really moving in this direction and you're going to submit and come underneath that. I don't know about you, but I can't tell you which is harder. Submitting even though I'm right or admitting that I'm wrong. Anybody else struggle with that? I hate to admit when I'm wrong. Ask my wife. I, man, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win through stubbornness. I'm going to have her submit through stubbornness. I'm going to stand on this hill and I'm going to fight it. Nobody else deals with that? All right, three of us. Cool. Well, we'll move off of this one quickly then because obviously it doesn't pertain to many. Wisdom from above is that responding that says, you know what, you're right. You're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Let's move forward with this. It's the idea of being flexible, coachable, teachable, able to embrace change. It's the opposite of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition says, you know, again, I'm going to die on this hill. Even though I know I'm wrong, there is no way I'm giving in. The fifth trait that's mentioned is to be full of mercy. Full of mercy. That word full is interesting. It can be a lot of things as we think of the word full. But one of the things that full is is to be controlled by. If you're filled with something, you're controlled by it. And to be controlled by mercy. Having compassion even though it might not be warranted, even though it might not be deserved, an outpouring of compassion, again, coming from this well of mercy that we've received, understanding that we are all sinners saved by grace. The idea of, again, trying to empty out your grace account, your mercy account, as God has so abundantly blessed you with mercy. You try to give it all away. Just try. Also, next, is full of good fruits. Again, the idea that full to be controlled by, but also because we have been so abundantly filled. This is that putting the act of mercy to work actively. Number seven on the list is unwavering. Never willing to compromise the truth of God's word. Ever, ever, ever. Regardless of the situation or the consequences. Now, this does not at all conflict with what we talked about earlier about yielding. We never yield when it comes to the truth of God's word. We can't. We can't. Again, direct opposite of what we talked about lying against the truth earlier. You can see that the exact opposite of the, the fruits of worldly wisdom and the fruits of godly wisdom. Lastly, it's without hypocrisy. Sincere. Nothing phony, no hidden agendas, absolute sincerity. And we see with these eight things, the, the traits that come from godly wisdom, that comes from above, James now tells us the result of this. He says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, it's the first thing we talked about after purity, but it comes all back to this. Peace. Peace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's taking it to the next level. Not only do you have peace, but you are a peacemaker. He can use you to go make peace. Not only with, one, with you with other relationships, but you getting involved in two other people's problems and making peace in those, bringing it together. You can be used by Jesus to be a peacemaker amongst others with godly wisdom. 
Our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our actions, our emails, our Facebook posts, our conversations, all of these things, with godly wisdom, they need to promote peace, not panic. They need to promote serenity and not stress, unity, not division. That is godly wisdom within us that produces peace. Jesus never promised that there wouldn't be trying situations or difficult people or turbulent days. As a matter of fact, he promised there would be. And there would be an abundance of them. But he also promised the availability of peace in all of it. Every bit of it. His peace is available. John 16.33 says, Jesus speaking, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And this peace isn't, again, just, it's, it's not peace, peace, pieces. <laughs> it's all encompassing. It's all there. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace of God so far transcends earthly wisdom, nobody's going to get it. The people around you aren't going to understand it because it surpasses comprehension. But it'll make them curious. It'll make them wonder how you can stand in the same storm as they are, but you have peace and they don't. And it's godly wisdom. We see, as James has been telling us, that this faith that we have, if it is a dynamic, living faith within us, it will show itself in our works, it will show itself in our words, and it will show itself in our wisdom. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the challenge of it. Lord, we understand as we, as we look at your wisdom that is available only through you. That, Lord, peace should define us. Lord, that's our prayer. That as others see us, they see that inner peace that comes first because of the reconciled relationship we have with you through the blood of Jesus. But then, Lord, also the peace that comes through your wisdom in our lives. Lord, it's our desire to do the things that you have already laid out ahead of us for us to do as followers of you. It's our desire to speak your words as you place them in our hearts and on our tongues. And it's our desire, Lord, to think your thoughts. Lord, we take captive every thought and surrender it to you. We surrender control of our hands and our hearts and our heads. Lord, we've heard your word. We have the knowledge. Give us your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.